0: Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at
1: Bethelpbc.us.
0: I would like to return to the first chapter of 2 Corinthians one more time, and let's begin by reading this exceedingly sweet verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. God says the apostle comforteth us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Now we're learning in this passage that God is the source of all comfort. He's called the God of all comfort in the third verse. And last time when we ended our time together, we were describing how God uses sufferings and afflictions as his school for training ministers of comfort. One of the ways that God comforts us in our afflictions is by means of veteran sufferers. That's the focus of the text. He comforts us, Paul says, in all our tribulation, so that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble, that we may pass it on, that we may pay it forward. God comforts us so that we may spread the comfort as ministers of his comfort to others, veteran sufferers. One of the things I've learned over the past few weeks of my indisposition is that it's impossible to comfort the comfortable. Those who are already satisfied and content need no comfort. It's only the person who feels his or her extremity, who senses a need that appreciates somebody reaching out to minister comfort to them. And one of the blessings that I've enjoyed over the past few weeks is those who reached out to share with me the kind of comfort that God had given to them in their distress, and it touched me deeply. You think of the different professions of comfort that are present in our modern world, doctors, nurses, caregivers. That's a ministry of comfort. Now, the fact that it's for compensation most of the time doesn't negate the fact that it's a ministry, that there is a service that is provided, but how much better it is even for God's children who do not receive financial compensation to take the lessons that God has taught them in their experience and to pass those on to others. And one of the great fields for ministry in our modern world today is this sphere of ministering to those who need comfort. Now, throughout 2 Corinthians, as we've noted previously, Paul bears his soul in a very vulnerable way regarding the many trials that he had experienced. It's one of his most intimate and personal epistles. But he doesn't disclose his inward struggles for the sake of sympathy, but as evidence of his apostolic integrity and authenticity It's the same thought that is mentioned in Galatians chapter 6, verse 17, when the apostle says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. From henceforth, therefore, let no man trouble me. In other words, he's saying, brethren, I'm a genuine apostle, and I have the scars to prove it. Now, of course, in Paul's case, these Marks for the Lord Jesus Christ were whip marks and the physical challenges he had experienced for persecution. But Paul wants them to know that he's not an imposter. In his ministry, he's not just out for old number one, he's not seeking personal favors. The apostle is a man of integrity and he's authentic, he's for real. And he wants them to know his many trials, not only because it proves his authenticity, but it's an example to others of the faithfulness of God. You see, dear friends, in our lives, God has taken care of each one of us, and our lives stand as monuments to his faithful providence. And when others look at us, they can say God has taken care of him. So the thought that is before us this morning is that suffering equips us. It's God's school for the ministry of comfort. And again, I suggest there is no more important sphere of labor and ministry for you and I than to minister comfort to others. You see, God doesn't minister comfort to us merely to make us comfortable but so that we could, again, be ministers of comfort, that we might be instruments of his blessing to others. The word comfort, of course, means more than just to pad, to coddle, to assuage someone's grief. It means to come to their side, to help them, to minister to them. And I want to suggest that it's vitally important in discipleship that you and I recover an individual, not just an institutional focus toward the Christian life. There's so many today who are thinking about the big picture of Christianity, of Christendom, and we say we've got to live for the church. Well, I'm interested in the church, but you know how you live for the church? By living for the individual people who make up that church. Jesus said that the way to serve me is to serve the individuals. Inasmuch as you've done it to one of these the least of these my brethren, you've done it unto me. And it's easy to lose the focus of the individual, the widow sister who is in need, the person who is financially strapped, the individual who is without a job, the person on his or her sickbed. It's easy to lose that individual focus because we become institutionalized. We begin to focus on the events on the global stage instead of on the real flesh and blood people around us. And that's one of the interesting features of our Lord Jesus Christ ministry. You know, our Lord Jesus was a minister of comfort. The story is told about him leaving the ninety and nine sheep and going after the one that was lost. Don't you love that individual focus? That Jesus cares for each one of his little lambs. And he seeks them out. And by the way, if that wasn't true, where would you be today? And where would I be today? He has sought me out. You say, well, aren't you interested in the glamour, in the publicity? Aren't you interested in the institution? Jesus says, no, I'm interested in the little lamb who has wandered from the fold. I love that passage in Mark 10 where He's passing through Jericho, and one blind man, a beggar named Bartimaeus, calls out and says, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy upon me. And of course, there's a great crowd thronging Jesus, and the people tell the blind man, be quiet, you're not important. Why would Jesus take knowledge of somebody like you? You're a blind beggar, but he cried out the more. Thou son of David, have mercy upon me. And it says, Jesus stood still for one person. Don't you love the individual focus of our Lord Jesus Christ? And then you think of him traveling through Samaria. He said, I must needs go through Samaria. And the reason he needed to go through Samaria was for this one Samaritan woman that you read about in John chapter 4. He stops just for her. She's had four husbands. The man she's living with now is not her husband. Jesus calls her to look to him as the one who can assuage her true thirst in life. And uh, the woman goes home to her friends and says, Come see a man that told me all things whatsoever I did. Now, I love the fact that Jesus knows you by your name. You're not just a face in the crowd. You're not just a number on a list. You're not just an address label, but the Lord Jesus knows each of his little lambs. He said in John 10, I know my sheep and am known of mine. And he wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life before time ever began. And my friends, may I say, when I think about the fact that when I'm on my sick bed, or when you're in your extremity, that the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't overlook us because of a broader, again, institutional kind of mindset, but the Lord Jesus Christ sees you where you are, and he stops, like he did for blind Bartabas, to bring blessing to individual lives. You think about the fact when he's going to the Gentile centurion's home, whose little daughter lay sick, this woman interrupts the procession and she reaches through the crowd saying, if I can but touch the hem of his garment, I will be made whole. And Jesus stopped whenever she touched him and he said, somebody touched me. And the disciples said, the multitudes are thronging you. What do you mean somebody touched you? He said, I perceive that virtue or power has gone out of me. She had spent all of her living on doctors and couldn't be healed of any. But you see, Jesus Christ, again, is concerned for the individual. And then another example, and we could just stack illustration on illustration. He went to Decapolis on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, where were ten Gentile villages, and one of them was named Gadara. But he goes there for one man, a wild man who's living out in the cemetery the wild Gadarene, and Jesus brings that man into his right mind, and now he's clothed, he's calm, he's at peace sitting at the feet of Jesus. Jesus said, go home to your friends and tell them how great things the Lord has done for you, and then he departs out of their coasts. He made a long trip for one person. Over and over again, we see Jesus was a minister of comfort Likewise, since Jesus has gone back to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to minister comfort to you and me. I'm glad to tell you today, dear friends, that you and I are not ultimately shut up to the help of man as our only source of aid in this life. Now, thank God for those who will come to our side and strengthen us in our hour of need, but we do have a heavenly helper, a resource in the person of the Holy Spirit who has been sent to the church to continue Jesus' ministry of comfort to the saints. In fact, in John chapter 14, verse 16, we read where it says, I will pray the Father and he will send you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Another, that is another of the same kind, precisely the same kind of encouragement and support that Jesus brought his disciples during his three and a half years of public ministry, the Holy Spirit brings to the church in all subsequent ages. In Acts chapter 9, verse 31, I love this editorial of the early church. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. What a blessing that is when the church has gospel rest and they were edified, that is built up Notice here's a church that's growing stronger, a church that's growing in the Lord, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. There's the word. They were multiplied. Walking in the fear of the Lord, God was real to them. They were reverent. God was taken seriously. They didn't use him, and the church walked not only in the fear of the Lord, but in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. So the Holy Spirit continues Christ's ministry of comfort to the church. And one of the ways that Christ continues to comfort the church through his spirit is through his gospel ministers. For gospel ministers are called to the ministry of comfort. If you were to ask me today, what is your primary job description, Brother Mike, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, I would say it is to comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Now, notice that's divine instruction for preachers. I like to know what is expected of me. Well, the Lord expects me to comfort, that is, to be an ally, to bring encouragement and strength and support to his afflicted and poor people. Again, I say it's hard to comfort the comfortable, but you find somebody that feels burdened, somebody that feels pressured, And a gospel minister who comes to his side is a wonderful blessing indeed because he's a minister of comfort. Now, notice our text now. God comforts us, says Paul. He's telling his experience. He said, I've been through trials. In fact, the word comfort and its synonym consolation appear 10 times in these first 11 verses. It's the sweetest passage on comfort in all the Bible. And Paul is saying that God has comforted me and my co-workers in all of our tribulation. And he had had plenty. In fact, he's about to tell us a specific example of when he almost died in this passage. Verses 8 and following. But he says, God has never abandoned me. And you know, that's my story today. He's never left me bereft of help. He's comforted me in all my tribulation, but here's the reason. So that I might become a minister of comfort, or that you might become a minister of comfort to others. You say, well, Brother Mike, just a minute. I've got my own life to worry about. I'm focused on my career, my goals, my dreams and visions. And uh, I don't have time for anybody else. And you say, it's not glamorous, Brother Goins. I know it's not glamorous. But there's nothing more important than to take the lessons God has taught you and to pass them on to the individuals around us. You know, one of the best ways a gospel minister can comfort God's people is to preach the gospel. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16, the Apostle Paul talks about the fact that the gospel is a message of everlasting consolation and good hope through grace i love that language let me read it exactly therefore brethren stand fast and hold the traditions which you've been taught he says i want you to be faithful to god whether by word or our epistle now our lord jesus christ himself and god even our father who hath loved us And hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. How does he do that? Through grace. May he comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work and word. The apostle says that God has given us a message through his grace of everlasting comfort. My beloved, the gospel is always appropriate. Paul asks the question, Philippians 2, 1, Brethren, is there any comfort of love? Is there any consolation in Christ? I would ask you today, my beloved, is the name of Jesus comforting to your heart? How sweet the name of Jesus sounds. In a believer's ear, it soothes his sorrows and heals his wounds and drives away his fears. To hear the gospel, to hear the good news, in a world of war and conflict and human exploitation and deceit, to hear the precious name of Jesus. Oh, my friends, there's comfort for God's afflicted poor. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, crying to her that her warfare is accomplished. So Jesus was a comforter. He sent the Holy Spirit to comfort the church. One of the ways the Holy Spirit comforts the church is by calling gospel ministers of comfort whose job description is described in Isaiah 61.1 when he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to comfort all that mourn to give unto them beauty for ashes, and the oil of joy for mourning, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he might be glorified. When the gospel preacher proclaims the precious gospel of Jesus Christ in Him crucified, and points poor sinners to the remedy for all of their ills. When Jesus Christ is high and lifted up, I dare say, dear friends, that's a message that will comfort you. Everlastingly, it's everlasting consolation. It's good hope through grace. There's comfort in the love of Christ. There's comfort to know that he loves us. And then as we look into the word, God uses his word to comfort us. Romans 15:4 says, Whatsoever things were written aforetime, talking about your Old Testament, were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now, if you need comfort today, where do you go? Somebody says, well, I watch a sitcom or I read a good novel. I want to tell you, dear friends, the only real support, somebody to stand beside you, to be your paraclete, your comforter, the only real strength and encouragement to be found in this world is in the truth that God is the God of all grace, That the Holy Spirit is the church's helper and that Jesus Christ is the source of all of our comfort. And when we read his word, I want to tell you, dear friends, if you don't spend time in your Bible on a regular basis, it's no wonder that your heart is full of anxiety and worry. The comfort to be found in this world is to be found in this blessed book. And how I need to remind myself of Joseph and how God took care of him and how God took care of David and his conflicts and the three Hebrew children and especially I need to remember the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, brethren, the things that have been written in this book are so that you and I may through comfort and patience of the scripture find hope. Psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction, for thy word hath quickened me. Now, I want you to notice in our text now, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. That specific expression indicates that everyone's not a candidate for comfort. Those who are in any trouble. And wisdom dictates that if you or I are going to minister spiritual comfort to others, we must exercise good judgment to know which medicine is needed for each sickness. There's an interesting verse in 1 Thessalonians 5:14, where the apostle says, Warn the unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient to all men. Notice he doesn't say warn the feeble-minded. He doesn't say support all men. He says warn the unruly. Speak straight to those who are veering off the path. Warn the unruly. He says, comfort the feeble-minded. Those who are simple and struggling, he says, they need a little extra word of encouragement. And then he says, support the weak, and then be patient to all men. Isaiah 59.1 tells us there's a time to cry aloud And spare not. Lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show the house of Israel their sins. You say, I thought the preacher's to comfort ye, comfort ye. Well, sometimes he's to cry aloud and spare not. Sometimes he's to afflict the comfortable and then to comfort the afflicted. Have you ever noticed how the Lord wounds, then he heals? He brings low and then he raises up? He first must rid us of our self sufficiency before you and I are ready to be used in a mighty way. So the point is that a minister of comfort is to comfort those who are in any trouble by the comfort, wherewith he himself has been comforted by God. And I want to ask you, is there anybody here today who's ever found yourself at a point of extremity and God has come to you in your hour of need and he stood beside you? What's the purpose of that? You say, well, because he favored me. Well, certainly that's an evidence of his love, but he came and stood beside you because he intends to use that to make you a veteran suffer. You're not just a recruit, a new recruit anymore. You're not an amateur. You're not a rookie, but he's using your experience so that you can pass that on to others and say, let me tell you what happened in my life. I know some of you have lost your mate, your life mate. And it was a monumental loss in your life, and you've never quite gotten over it. The wounds heal, but the scars remain. And uh, you never feel completely like yourself anymore. But I, I want to tell you, dear friends, that there's a realm for you to minister, to take the lessons that God brought you. And I've watched some of you do it. Reach out to others who are passing through that same dark valley that you walked through. And you're passing on the lessons you've learned, the songs that touched you, the verses that encouraged you, the experiences that you had, and you're sharing it. You say, well, I just feel so inadequate. We are inadequate, but God isn't. And here's the point. He uses your lives and my life for the sake of spreading comfort to others. Paul is saying, brethren, that's who I am as a minister. God has comforted me. He's allowed me to go through all of these sufferings and troubles so that I can pass these lessons on to you and to his people who are in like circumstances. Likewise, my beloved, every sufferer is called to minister comfort to others. I love that word in Genesis twelve three when God called Abraham and he said, I will bless thee and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless you. Now, that's not the end of it. I will bless you so that you can then pass it on. Thou shalt be a blessing. It's a wonderful old hymn that picks up on that thought. It says, out in the highways and byways of life, many are weary and sad. That's so true, isn't it? Carry the sunshine where darkness is rife, making the sorrowing glad. And Then the chorus, make me a blessing, make me a blessing. Out of my life, may Jesus shine. Make me a blessing, O Savior, I pray. Make me a blessing to someone today. Give as twas given to you in your need. Love as the Master loved you. Be to the helpless a helper indeed. Unto your mission be true. Make me a blessing. Make me a blessing. Out of my life, may Jesus shine. Make me a blessing, O Savior, I pray. Make me a blessing to someone today god said abraham i will bless you and thou shalt be a blessing oh my friends to be a blessing to live for others let this my motto be help me to live for others and so let me live like thee you see how paul says brethren i want you to know that i've been through the ringer but god was with me and he's been with me so that i might Pass that on to others. This is the same thought that you and I need to glean from this passage this morning. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, even so our consolation aboundeth by Christ. The late B.B. Warfield, in a sermon entitled Imitating the Incarnation, said Christ was led by his love for others into the world, to forget himself in the needs of others, to sacrifice himself. Once for all upon the altar of sympathy, self-sacrifice brought Christ into the world and self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from it, but into the midst of men. Wherever men suffer, there will be a need for comfort. Wherever men strive, there we will be to help. Wherever men fall, there we will be to lift them up. Wherever men succeed, there we must be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and our fellows. It means absorption in them. It means forgetfulness of self for the sake of others. It means entering into every other person's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. It means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives. Binding ourselves to a thousand souls by the filaments of so loving a sympathy that their lives become as ours. It means that all the experiences of men shall smite our souls and shall beat and batter these stubborn hearts of ours into fitness for their heavenly home. It is, after all, then, the path to the highest possible development by which alone we can be made truly men. Imitate the incarnation. Just as Christ became us, so you and I are called to become others. We're called to invest into their lives, to share the things that God has taught us with them. The resources he's given us to be a support, a strength, not to just live for ourselves. You know, there's a verse in Philippians 2 that says, All seek their own and not the things that are Jesus Christ's. And how true is that of the day in which we live? Everyone is an island to himself. Everyone, it seems, is focused on myself instead of on others, on the Lord, on the church, on those who need us. Paul says God has comforted me not just because I deserved it or because I needed it. He's comforted me so that I could pass that on in comforting others with the comfort wherewith he has comforted me. And then as we close this morning, I want you to look at verses 8 through 11, where he cites a specific example of how God had comforted him. He says, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia. Now, when Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this, he means I want full disclosure. Brethren, I want you to know that I had trouble when I was in Asia. And Asia, of course, refers to Asia Minor. And by the way, Ephesus is where Paul went when he left Corinth. If you remember the book of Acts, he was at Corinth for a year and a half. Then he went to Ephesus for three years. That's Asia. And while he was in Ephesus, Paul had repeated experiences in which his life was in jeopardy. Now, I want you to listen to this language. Brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant of the trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure. the word pressed out of measure means exceedingly weighed down. And I suggest that we can't begin to imagine exactly how exceedingly weighed down he felt. It carries the thought of something in excess, of intensity. I want you to know what happened to me when I was in Asia. He said, I had burdens so heavy, they were intense, they were excessive. And he says, we were pressed out of measure Above strength, and that expression means beyond what we were able to bear. Now, I wonder if you've ever been there. You say, well, Brother Mike, I had a, an appliance that I bought that went on the blink two weeks after I bought it one time. So, yeah, I've had big problems. No, dear friends, I wonder if you've ever been at the point where you thought you were about to die. I wonder, dear friends, if it has ever appeared completely hopeless in your life when there was no remedy, when there was no option. Paul says, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact that when I was in Asia, now he's talked about how God's comforted him, now he's going to cite a specific example. And he says, when I was in Asia, I was pressed out of measure, above strength in so much that we despaired even of life. He could not escape the awareness that his death was near. Now, I don't know that I've ever been quite where he was. This past few weeks, I've thought at a point or two that, you know, it was possible that life could be very fragile, more fragile than I'd thought that it was at a certain point. But I don't know that I've ever been right at death's door where I thought there is really no exit. I mean, at least there's been some hope, some inkling. But Paul says, brethren, when I was in Asia... He, he's he's bearing his soul. He's telling them just how extreme and abject his situation was, brethren. I'm not just speaking, he says, superficially. When I talk about comfort, I'm not just using verbiage. He said, I'm telling you a real experience where God came to me in my hour of need, and He helped me. And he says, in so much we despaired even of life, but we had the sentence of death in ourselves. The word sentence speaks of the verdict in a court proceeding. It was like I had been condemned to death, he says. The verdict had been issued, and there was no option for deliverance. He says, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth the dead. Now, stop right there for just a minute. What was the trouble in Asia that Paul references in this verse? Well, Bible commentators and students are not unanimous in their answer to that question. The um, possibility that it was a conglomeration, an amalgam of various troubles that he had when he was in Ephesus is probably pretty accurate. You know, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we're in 2 Corinthians 1 right now, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, he talks about how a great door and effectual was opened to him at Ephesus, but there were many adversaries. He talks about how he had significant opposition. And of course, if you read through Acts, it's evident that wherever he turned, he met with adversaries. For instance, in Acts chapter 19, verse 22, Paul is in Ephesus and Demetrius, there's a great conflict that arises over this man named Demetrius who's a silversmith who made silver shrines for the goddess Diana and uh, was, is a very lucrative trade. And uh, Paul has preached that they are no gods which are made with men's hands. And Demetrius stands up and he says, he's setting our craft in danger. He's saying that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised that her magnificence should be destroyed whom all asia and the world worshipeth and of course the public outcry is so great that paul's life is in danger and he has to be hidden away the point is that wherever paul went because he preached the truth he was met with opposition by the way truth is still not popular today when paul later in second corinthians chapter 11 talks about of the jews five times I received 40 stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once was I stoned, or twice was I stoned. You know, you have one episode of his stoning in Acts chapter 14 at Lystra. You have him beaten one time. There's a record of one time when he was beaten in Philippi with rods. But yet he said, it's happened five times. Five times I've received 40 stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods. In other words, what I'm saying is Paul's trials were more numerous than what is recorded in the book of Acts. And in Ephesus, because this pagan culture, because it was so idolatrous, he was under tremendous pressure because he couldn't just, you know, say, I'm going to preach to you about uh, Jesus wept and Moses crept and saved by grace and the old Baptists have the church. He preached against idolatry. He preached against paganism. He preached against these are not even gods that people are worshiping. Paul challenged the status quo of the day. And because he did that, he suffered the same kind of recrimination Jesus suffered. The sufferings of Christ abound in us. He suffered for the sake of Christ. But you see, in all of his sufferings, God never left him. God came to his side and comforted him. And Paul says, of all these troubles that I had, he said, the whole purpose of them was to teach me, even though I thought I was about to die, that I should not trust in myself, but in God, which raiseth the dead. You see, my friends, the whole goal of our troubles is to drive us outside of ourselves to teach us how real God is. Why do you have troubles in your life? Why have you had these extremities, these sufferings? You say, they've left me shell-shocked. I have PTSD. I understand. But the lesson is that God is real and that you can depend on him and that he won't ever abandon you. And that's a lesson other people need. And you can speak with the voice of the veteran when you've been through it. And you can say, let me tell you, God was with me, and I'm here with you, but even I am not your ultimate source of help. God will never abandon you. And that's why Paul says in this passage that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raises the dead. I love Albert Barnes' comment on this verse. He says, Paul was in such great danger. And he had so certain a prospect of death that he could put no reliance on himself. He felt that he must die and that human aid was vain. According to every probability, he would die. And all that he could do now was to cast himself on the protection of that God who had power to save him even then if he chose. And who, if he did, it would exert a power similar to that which is put forth when the dead are raised. The effect, therefore, of the near prospect of death was to lead Paul to put increasing confidence in God. You see, our God, the God we trust in, my beloved, is the God who can raise the dead. When Abraham was told he's going to have a child and his body was past the age of fathering children and Sarah was barren, Abraham, against hope, believed in hope. He trusted in a God who can raise the dead. When he took Isaac up on the mountain, Isaac was as good as dead, but it says he obeyed God, accounting that God was able to raise him up. And I'm telling you, you have a God today, dear friends, who even death is no obstacle for, but he can raise the dead. And we trust in that God, Paul goes on to say, who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver. Paul says, God delivered me. Isn't it wonderful to look back with 20-20 hindsight and say, here I was at the point of extremity, and God delivered me. And then Paul says he keeps delivering me from death and misery on a day-by-day basis, and in whom we trust he will yet deliver us. Ye also helping together. My prayer, my hope for the future, he says, is that God will continue to deliver in answer to the intercessory prayers of God's people. How we need to pray for each other. How we need to call on God, the only one who can deliver. He's a delivering God. He's a God who can raise the dead. And when we help each other, not only by sharing the comfort that he's given us, but by praying for each other to the God who can sustain and help. Thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf. God will get more glory. The summary this morning, here's the point I've tried to drive it. Christian people like you and me are called to serve our Lord by serving other people around us in the ministry of comfort. How do you do that? By passing the comfort on that you've received from the Lord to them. You know, one of the best ways you can do that is when someone passes You share the message of the resurrection. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. What words? You say, I don't know how to comfort. Use those words. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall ye ever be with the Lord. That's how you comfort others, by passing on the comfort that you've received from the Lord. The second thing that's important from this passage is our sufferings prepare us and equip us to fulfill this ministry. I wonder today if you're a veteran sufferer. If that's true, you've been trained. You've been equipped for the service of ministry. You've been to seminary, the Seminary of Suffering. And I'll tell you the lessons I've learned in the School of Suffering is that our God is a delivering God who can do the impossible, he can raise the dead. And those who've learned that lesson are best qualified to be ministers of his comfort to others. And then whenever deliverance comes in your life and in mine, remember he gets all the thanks, all the glory. God gets all the glory for comforting his children in their respective hour of need. For he and he alone is the God of all comfort. I love the words of this comforting hymn. Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief and pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. That's so true. Be still, my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Be still, my soul, thy God doth undertake to guide the future just as he has the past. That's right. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul, the waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. And then this last verse, Be still, my soul, the hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord. Oh, what a happy day that will be. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, and love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past, all safe and blessed we shall meet at last. My beloved, there's coming a day when you're going to be healed, when you're going to be happy, when all trials will be over. Until then, thank God, we have a God of all comfort who stands at our side, who equips us through his Holy Spirit with gospel ministers and with people who've been through the school of suffering themselves that can come to our side and remind us of who he is and what he's done. That's the best kind of life to live with that individual focus, being a minister of comfort. Lord, help me live for others. Make me a blessing to somebody today. What a sweet passage this is in 2 Corinthians chapter
1: 1.